them. Well, Genesis 38 is where we're at, depravity and God's indestructible promises. And last week, we were in Genesis 37, which is the beginning of the Joseph cycle of stories that runs through the end of the book. So today we come to, of course, chapter 38, which on the surface can seem to have absolutely nothing to do with the stories about Joseph. And frankly, this sleazy saga about Judah and Tamar, it's not only shocking, but it seems really out of place. And I mean, chapter 37 ends with us being told that Joseph had been taken to Egypt and sold to a military official named Potiphar. And then at the very beginning of chapter 39, uh, we're told virtually the exact same thing, reminding us of Joseph's fate. And so the placement of chapter 38, this Judah interlude, as it's been called, it just seems really odd and disjointed and random. And it begs the question, what does this yucky story have to do with anything, let alone Joseph? Well, those are great questions, and so I want to pray again as we get into the text. So let me pray. Our Father, you have told us in Romans chapter 15 that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And so we trust that you've given Genesis 38 to instruct and encourage us, and to strengthen our hope in Jesus Christ. And so please help me to clearly proclaim your truth. Please help all of us to receive and respond in faith to your eternal word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to go ahead and read all of chapter 38 in its entirety, and then we will dive in to explore what the Lord has for us here. So let's hear God's word, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. And then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother." But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. And so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. And then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brother's. And so Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Verse 12, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. 
And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enium, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was growing up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enium at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. Verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by her immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Well, then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. This is the word of the Lord. Well, one of my favorite quiet activities as a little kid, and I had plenty of loud activities as well, but one of my favorite quiet activities was doing dot-to-dot picture puzzles. In fact, I have it on very reliable authority, namely my mother, so don't even try to question this, but I have it on very reliable authority that roughly from ages seven to nine, I was indeed the dot-to-dot champion of the world. Now, you know how dot-to-dots work. You have a page that's filled with lots of numbered dots, and then beginning with dot number one, you connect the dots in numerical order. Now, before you do this, you don't know uh, what the whole picture is going to be. 
But as you connect the dots one by one, the picture slowly emerges until it's finally complete. And in this reality, of course, no single dot is the whole picture, but each dot is an essential part of the picture. Now, of course, somebody has to make the dot-to-dot puzzle. In other words, there's a master artist who knows the big picture and who then wisely arranges the dots in just the right way to reveal the picture. You probably know where I'm going with the illustration, right? In many ways, this is exactly what God has done with his word. He knows the big picture of the redemption in Jesus Christ that his word reveals. And all the stories and the details of Scripture are kind of like individual dots that God has wisely and perfectly arranged to paint this picture for us. And in His Word, no single dot is the whole picture, but each dot is an essential part of the picture. And what this means is that little by little, as we grow in our knowledge of God's word, the big picture of his redemption in Jesus, it becomes clearer and clearer. And then as a result, our faith should be growing and growing stronger and stronger. Well, I say all of that to let us know and remind us that Genesis 38 is a vitally important part of God's glorious picture of redemption in Jesus. And as we're going to see the essential dot of Genesis 38, it connects significantly not only to the whole story of Genesis, which includes Joseph, but it connects significantly to the whole story of Scripture. And so again, the question, what is this soap opera-like story? What does it have to do with anything, let alone Joseph? And the answer is ultimately everything. So let me just give you the main lesson that we're going to see as we begin to unpack what is found in Genesis 38. Here's the main lesson. It's this. Man's natural depravity cannot destroy God's indestructible promises. Man's natural depravity cannot destroy God's indestructible promises. And the sordid drama of Genesis 38, what it gives to us are two pictures to ponder. Two pictures that connect to the big picture of God's promised redemption in Jesus Christ. So that's the framework that we're going to look at these matters in Genesis 38. Two pictures to ponder. So here's picture number one, and it is this, man's natural depravity. It's a picture of man's natural depravity. And what a picture it is. Now, as I said earlier, on the surface, this story doesn't seem to to really fit. It seems awkward and out of place at the beginning of the Joseph stories. But it actually has a very significant literary and theological purpose for being here. In the literary structure of Genesis, chapter 37, as we know, has introduced us to Joseph and him being sold into Egypt as a slave. 
And before that story continues in chapter 39, chapter 38 is kind of a, kind of a meanwhile back at the ranch kind of story. It's a side story. And of course, it focuses only on Judah, not on Joseph's other brothers. And this is because of the theological purpose of the story that ultimately has to do with the twin sons Perez and Terah that are born to Judah at the end of the chapter. And we're going to get there eventually. And I'm going to say more about this theological purpose because it is massive. It's massive in connection with God's purposes for Judah and through Judah, and those purposes are deeply connected to God's purposes for Joseph. And so we're going to see in future chapters in Genesis, especially in chapter 43 and 44 and 49, that Judah plays a big-time role with what goes on in those chapters. But we're not going to get there today, of course. But that's why this story in chapter 38 is intentionally and very intricately put here. It's to tease and to provoke our interest in what God is doing with Judah. In other words, the literary purpose of the story is given there to arouse our curiosity about the theological purpose for what's going to become of Judah with these twin sons of his. And so it's amazing. It's almost as if God wrote the book. It's because he did write the book. Moses was likely the human author, but God is superintending all of it. Well, there's one other thing that I want to note about the events of chapter 38 before we probe a little more deeply into man's natural depravity. One more thing to mention, and that is this. Everything that happens in this chapter takes place over a span of the roughly 22 years between when Joseph's brothers wickedly banish him to slavery in Egypt and when Joseph who in God's providence has since become the most powerful political ruler in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh, when Joseph reveals himself to his stunned brothers. There's about 22 years between Joseph going to Egypt and then him revealing himself to his brothers. And there are several time markers throughout the Joseph stories that make this time frame clear. I'm not going to go into all of those now. But this interlude in chapter 38, the point is, is that it didn't just happen overnight. And obviously, there's the mention of several marriages and several births, which indicate this. In fact, we're told later, way over in chapter 46, verse 12, that when all of Jacob's family providentially moved to Egypt, which included Judah and his sons, Even his son Perez himself had already had a couple of sons. And so there's a long period of time that chapter 28 encompasses, 22 years for Judah and his offspring. And from a human standpoint, standpoint, as we've read, it's it's a story of shameful depravity. Now, man's natural depravity is what we see very dominantly in this chapter. And I'm using the term man as shorthand for mankind, for every man, for every woman. But it's pictured most fully, of course, with Judah in the story. Now, of course, there are other characters as well. 
Judah's friend Hira, the Adulamite. Uh, Adulam was a town in Canaan, probably about 10 miles from the family home in Hebron. So he's an idolatrous pagan, and then, of course, he lives in the pagan idolatrous realm of the Canaanites, among whom Judah married. And, of course, Judah's sons Ur and Onan, who were killed by God for their wickedness, and even Tamar, who deceitfully committed incest with her father-in-law. So there's a lot of, of depraved depravity going on here in the chapter, but we're going to really focus in on Judah because he's most prominent in the story. And what I want to do is have us ponder three different aspects of his natural depravity, three different aspects of his spiritual corruption. And to varying degrees, these aspects of depravity are true for all of mankind. They're true for every single one of us, these three aspects of natural depravity. The first thing to note with regard to this in Judah is that his depravity was extensive. His depravity was extensive. In fact, going back to chapter 37, along with his brothers, we see Judah's escalating hatred and his raging jealousy for his younger brother, Joseph. Now, Judah would have been a part of murdering Joseph had not the brother Reuben intervened. But Judah appears to be without conscience, conscience as he callously feasts on his lunch after throwing Joseph into a pit. He just goes and he eats lunch with the rest of his brothers. And we also see Judah's selfish greed and that he's the one that suggests the idea of selling Joseph to the Medishmielite traders going down to Egypt. And then he's shared with his brothers in brazenly deceiving their father that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal. And to further his depravity, we see his cold-hearted cruelty only intensifying as he lets his father just wallow in his inconsolable grief. It's a horrible picture of the extensiveness of Judah's depravity. And we haven't even got to chapter 38 yet. That's all the background in chapter 37. But in fact, it's probably because of the fact that Judah couldn't handle being in the presence of his grieving father. It's probably because of that that he chose to leave the family and to go live with his buddy, Hiram. He just couldn't deal with it anymore. You see, Judah was likely the leader in causing Jacob's crushing despair through the deception that they conspired. But for Judah, rather than dealing humbly and honestly with the weight of guilt that must have been in his conscience, what does he do? He decides to run away. He tries to escape his sin and his guilt, running further and further away from God, trying to run away from the consequences that he's been a part of bringing about. But as we see in chapter 38, his selfish decision to leave only brings more problems. And so this leads to the second aspect of his depravity that we see and that we should ponder. Not only the extensiveness of his, of his depravity, but his depravity was also progressive. It was also progressive. 
Now again, Judah seems to be running and hiding from the horrible consequences of his sins, from the problems that he's created with Jacob and his family, as we read about in chapter 37. But in trying to avoid these problems, or perhaps even solve them by escaping them, things only go from bad to worse for Judah. In other words, there is a progressive escalation to his depravity. And he's a tragic example of what happens when people try to solve their own sinful problems in their own sinful way. Now, because Judah's depravity was a natural part of who he was, he couldn't escape his depravity. And he couldn't fix the problems that his sin had created. He only made matters worse. So just think about it. He becomes progressively more corrupt as he marries a pagan Canaanite woman. And the sense of our text and how that is described in the early part of chapter 38 is that he was drawn to this woman simply by physical attraction and a desire for gratification. Now, of course, we're told that then over the years, he has three sons, and he, presume, he takes presumably a Canaanite woman named Tamar. She was probably a Canaanite as well. He takes her for his oldest son, Ur. But of course, we're told that Ur is wicked and killed by the Lord. And so Judah directs his next son, Onan, to follow the custom of the day and to raise up offspring for his brother with Tamar. But Onan was also wicked. He likely didn't want to share his inheritance with offspring that wouldn't really be his. And so the Lord also killed Onan. Well, then Judah, no doubt thinking that Tamar is the reason that Ur and Onan died, he sends her back to her father's house. And Judah says that he'll give his son Shelah to her when Shelah is old enough but he clearly has no intention of doing so. What's he doing? He's lying. More deception, progressive depravity. It just goes deeper and deeper. Well, of course, the years go by. We're told that Judah's wife dies, and Tamar knows now that he's never going to give Shelah to her. And so, eager for children and prompted by others, Tamar succeeds with a deceitful plan of her own that exploits Judah's sexual weakness. She must have known that he was easy prey for this. And the Canaanite time of sheep shearing was a time that was filled with festiveness and promiscuity. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, Judah's become progressively compromised in this pagan culture. And so it's no surprise that he falls right into Tamar's trap, giving his personal identification to her as a pledge of payment for her services. Now, his signet with its cord, it was a little personal seal that a person would wear around their neck, a personal seal that was used for business transactions. And his staff was also personalized specifically to him. So in other words, what he gave to her would basically be like uh, today giving someone your driver's license and a credit card. There's no doubt who it belongs to. These are identifying realities. That's what he gives to her. 
Well, of course, the drama continues and Tamar conceives. And when in three months, Judah is told that she is pregnant by immorality, what does he do? He hypocritically calls for the death sentence to put her to death for the very immorality that he had been guilty of committing. More progressive depravity. But as Tamar is being brought out to be burned, she shows Judah's identification, indisputably revealing him as the father. Boom! He's exposed and he's broken. He's caught red-handed and he can't run anymore. Now, verse 26 then, it reveals a major turning point for Judah. He acknowledges his guilt when he says, she is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. Now, with what he says there, he's not affirming Tamar's morality, but rather he's acknowledging that she was more in the right than he was. She gave attention to her, to her own inheritance rights, which he had shamefully neglected and withheld from her by withholding Sheila. Now, I'm going to come back to this pivotal point for Judah in a little bit. But for now, I want us to ponder one more aspect of his depravity. Not only was it extensive, not only was it progressive, but we also see that his depravity was enslaving. It was enslaving. And this is the picture that is painted in this story in chapter 38. So not only was his sin extensive and progressive, but he was a slave to his depravity. He was in bondage to his sin. Try as he might, he couldn't do anything but sin. And in essence, the more he tried to fix the consequences of his sin, the more he sinned and the more bad consequences he produced. And again, this goes back to what we learn of him in chapter 37 as well. And so Judah's bondage to his sin and his futile efforts to fix the problems created by his sin They're kind of like what happens when somebody gets trapped in quicksand. I've never been in quicksand. I hope it never happens. But I understand that if you fall into quicksand and nobody else is there to help you, the harder you try to escape on your own, what happens? You're only sucked in deeper and deeper and deeper. The quicksand enslaves you. And friends, that's exactly what is happening with Judah. The more he tries to make things right and and deal with the bad consequences from his sin, because he's never repented, the deeper and deeper he goes. And just like you can't escape quicksand on your own, he couldn't escape his sin, his depravity on his own. He needed somebody to rescue him. Now, in this extensive progressive, enslaving depravity that we see in Judah, which again exemplifies all of humanity, we, f- we see exemplified many truths that are found elsewhere in Scripture. For example, let me just mention a few different passages that really provide commentary for what we see with Judah and really with all of mankind. Proverbs 14, verse 12 
says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, God declares this, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. He's speaking of the futility of what happens when someone forsakes the Lord and tries to nourish themselves and provide refreshment for themselves on their own. It's impossible. It's absolutely impossible. And then in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, and in this passage, the Apostle Paul is actually quoting from both Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. And he says there in Romans 3, verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. And then last, but certainly not least, in Titus chapter 3, verse 3, Paul speaks of the natural depravity of all of us when he says, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Perhaps he was even thinking of Judah in chapters 37 and 38. Well, friends, all of these passages, and as it's evidenced in Judah's life, all of these concern what has come to be known as the doctrine of total depravity. Maybe you've heard of that, the doctrine of total depravity, or it's also been called uh, radical corruption or moral inability. And it's the truth that every single one of us are born with a sinful nature. And that's the natural reality of it. This is inborn. This is inbred in our DNA. We are born with a sinful nature that infects and pollutes every part of who we are. It infects our minds. It infects our wills. It infects our emotions and our desires and our flesh. Now, here's the important point to understand. This matter of total depravity, of radical corruption, it does not mean that we are as bad as we could be. But it does mean that we are nowhere near as righteous as we should be in God's eyes. And so what it means is that because of total depravity, because of our radical corruption, Even good things that we might do are ultimately stained and polluted by the self-serving, self-worshipping depravity that is natural to all of us. And because this depravity is extensive, progressive, and enslaving, we can no more deliver ourselves from it than we can deliver ourselves from death. We need to be rescued. And so such is the picture of depravity in Genesis 38, especially with Judah. And I think of this matter of total depravity that infests and infects every single one of us. I think of it kind of like cooked liver. 
I haven't had cooked liver in a long, long time because my memories of it when I was a kid, I have a lot of memories from a kid from when I was a kid, is every time I tried to eat it, I would gag. And I remember one time my dad, in an effort to try to get me to eat liver, he doctored it all up with all kinds of bacon and onions and cooking. And oh man, it just smelled awesome. It smelled wonderful. And I took a bite and it was, oh, it was still liver. It just was there. You can't hide the taste of it. Now, some of you might like liver, and that's wonderful. Praise God. God is good. I don't care for it. I, I'm just too afraid to eat it again. But my point is that, it, that, it, that that's kind of the way our depravity is. It doesn't matter what you might do to try to doctor it up on the outside and try to give it a nice aroma and a nice appearance and all of that. At the core, it's still what it is. It's depravity that has displaced God for self, that worships self instead of God. And we need to be rescued from it, just like Judah did. Well, praise God, Genesis 38 does not end with Judah's depravity. It ends with evidence of God's indestructible promises. And so having pondered for a little bit the picture of man's natural depravity, let's move to the next picture for us to consider, and that is God's indestructible promises. This is picture number two, God's indestructible promises. Now, Genesis 38, it ends there in verses 27 to 30 with a report of twin sons born to Tamar. We're told the son named Zerah started to be the firstborn, but in the birth canal, he drew his hand back and his brother Perez pushed him aside and pushed through instead of Zerah. And that's why Perez is named Perez. The name means push through or breach. And this, beloved, this is the theological significant event that the whole chapter has been leading up to. Now ponder this. Think about this with me. The birth of offspring, especially sons, is a major part of the whole storyline of Genesis, right? We think of Adam and Eve's sons, Cain and Abel. We think of the sons that Noah had. We think of Abraham's sons, Ishmael and Isaac. And then we think of Isaac's twin sons, Esau and Jacob. And of course, we think of Jacob's 12 sons. In fact, later in Genesis, we're going to learn of Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And the point is that offspring, especially sons, they are very important in the storyline of Genesis. And so the report of these two sons, these twin sons, Perez and Zerah, who are twins, just like Esau and Jacob, the point of the story is it's intended to arouse our curiosity and our interest. It's intended to provoke us to, to be thinking, what is God doing here? Especially with this firstborn Perez, because of all the previous things we've seen with offspring and with sons. So in other words, this report is kind of like a flashing neon sign that is saying, pay attention, because there's something significant here, something significant that God is doing. Well, what God was doing, especially with the firstborn Perez, is that he was showing the indestructibility of his promises. Because you see, 
despite Judah's natural depravity, rank as it was, extensive and progressive and enslaving as it was, God's indestructible promises prevailed. They weren't destroyed. Because Judah had tried to destroy Joseph. And if he'd have been successful in that with his brothers, he in essence would have destroyed God's promise plan and the depravity also of Judah. He, he would have destroyed himself and many others. But you see, God was sovereignly, powerfully working to produce offspring through Judah, namely Perez, through whom God's promised plan to bring the blessing of salvation to the nations would continue to advance. And so that's why I say the main lesson of the whole chapter is that man's natural depravity cannot destroy God's indestructible promises. And this is why, beloved, Perez is distinctively included in future genealogies that we find in Scripture that lead to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Promised One. In fact, hundreds of years after Perez's birth, at the end of the book of Ruth, we see the birth of Perez leading to the birth of Israel's King David. And so we read in verse 18 and following at the end of Ruth 4, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, and on down the line until Boaz, who was married to Ruth, fathered Obed, and Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. So you see, Perez is a massively significant link in the chain of the ongoing development of God's promises. In fact, that genealogy at the end of Ruth chapter 4 then points even more to a genealogy that we find in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1, which identifies the family line of the King of Kings, of the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning with Abraham. And in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 1, we read, And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron. And then the genealogy continues. You see, man's natural depravity cannot destroy God's indestructible promises. Now, given that, all these things in Genesis 38, they are all interwoven then with the unfolding story about Joseph as we're going to see in coming weeks. And we're going to see how God preserved Joseph despite how he suffered at his brother's hands and despite how he is yet to suffer at the hands of others. But we're also going to see how God then used Joseph to preserve his brothers and his father Jacob, who otherwise would have died from a famine that came to the land. And so what we're going to see in all of that is God working through Joseph to preserve his chosen family of promise. And what chapter 38 is showing us is God working through Judah despite his depravity, to preserve the advancement of his promise through his chosen family. And God did all of this to bring his promised blessings of salvation to the nations, to bring redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, you need to know also that with all of this, God wasn't done with Judah yet either. And maybe you've thought about this as you've heard these events in chapter 38. Maybe you've wondered to yourself, I sure did. Wait a second. Why didn't God kill Judah on the spot in chapter 38 or even back in chapter 37 for that matter? I mean, we read in verses 7 through 10 of chapter 38 that God killed both Ur and Onan because they were wicked. Well, was Judah any less wicked than they were? The answer is no. He was a very wicked man. He was very wicked. Why didn't God kill him on the spot? And you know what the answer to that question is, beloved? It's sovereign grace. It's God's sovereign grace. It's the reason why God doesn't kill any unbeliever on the spot. It's because of his sovereign grace, because he is still holding out the offer of salvation to those who are yet in their sins. And it was God's sovereign grace. He chose to be gracious to Judah, and he chose to be gracious through Judah. Now, I mentioned earlier that the exposure of Judah's sin by Tamar, it was indeed a turning point in his life. It was a breaking point for him. We're not told anything directly about his spiritual condition after chapter 38, but when we see him again in the Joseph stories in chapter 43 and in chapter 44, he is unquestionably a changed man. To start with, he's, he's actually humble, and he's honest, and he's loyal, and we don't know the details, but he's also been reconciled with his father, Jacob. He's a changed man. And then at the end of, or in chapter 49, when Jacob gives prophecy concerning his son Judah, we learn more about God's purposes for Judah, and even in that prophecy in verses 9 through 12 of chapter 49, Judah calls Jacob a lion's cub. And specifically in verse 10 of that prophecy, listen to what we read. This is God ultimately through Jacob prophesying about what's going to come of Judah's line. He says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And beloved, this is God's promise that the Messiah King is going to come from Judah's descendants. That's why Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, is identified as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Man's natural depravity cannot destroy God's indestructible promises. And so friends, do you see something of the dots of God's word connecting to show the glorious salvation that he's accomplished in Jesus Christ for all who believe? And what all this means is that God is absolutely trustworthy. He's absolutely trustworthy in all he's promised. Everything that God has promised to bring the blessing of salvation to undeserving sinners like you and like me and like every other human being to bring undeserving sinners everywhere who would repent, his promises to do that are brought to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. 
And so as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, all of God's promises are yes in Him. Beloved, you and I and every human being, we are naturally depraved people. It plays out in our lives in varying degrees, but the sickness and the pollution of depravity is present. And our sinful depravity is indeed extensive, it's progressive, and it is enslaving. And we deserve God's wrath and His judgment, and we can't save ourselves. We can't rescue ourselves. Our only and our great full assurance of hope is to trust the rock-solid promises of all that God has done and all that He has given in Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 1 to his disciples. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. That's the heart of it. Believe and keep believing in all that God is and has revealed and given in the Lord Jesus Christ. God keeps his promises. He's fully, fully trustworthy. And so, beloved, what that means is that you can trust God's promises. You can trust God's promises in Jesus to forgive and cleanse you of your many sins, just as I do for my many sins. You can trust God's promises in Jesus to be with you and to strengthen you to obey God's commands. You can trust God's promises in Jesus when you're fearful and when you're lonely, and when you're tempted, and when you're doubting, and when you're anxious, and when you're perplexed, or maybe when you're hurting or grieving. You can trust God's promises when you're sick, and you can even trust God's promises on your deathbed. Beloved, that's the point of application of the whole chapter. God is trustworthy, so trust His promises always. At all times and in all circumstances, you can always trust every promise God has given in His Word because it's impossible for Him to lie. And so as we heard read earlier in Hebrews chapter 6, we who have fled for refuge to Him, we can have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that He set before us. Amen. Amen. Let me lead us in prayer. Father God, we marvel at the greatness of who you are, that you are a God who is faithful to every single one of your promises in perfect, exacting, sovereign, powerful detail. You are able to work within and beyond the natural depravity of mankind as extensive and as progressive and as enslaving as it is to us and as powerless as we are to do anything about it, you are the one who has conquered all in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we marvel and we are amazed at the glory and the riches of all of your promises in him. We pray, Father, that each one here would know the fullness of your grace and of your mercy and of your blessings through all that you hold out to us in Christ. Perhaps there are some who have never turned from their sin, who have never owned up to their depravity and their separation from you, for whom today would be the day of salvation when they would look to you in faith. May you so draw them to yourself. 
And for those of us that you've brought to faith, may you strengthen us and help us to continually lay hold of the hope that you have set before us. To not doubt or question or shrink back from your promises, but rather to persevere in faith. Lord, you know we need your help to do so, and we thank you that you give such help abundantly and richly through your word and through your Holy Spirit. And so we thank you and trust that you'll be glorified among us, even as these truths would would do their work in our lives for your glory. And we pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen and amen.